0: Welcome to our fourth episode of Norwegian on Air. And for this episode, we will dedicate the whole episode to the theme of fuel. Interesting, both
1: with regards to the environmental impact and to cost.
0: Yeah. Fuel is definitely uh, the largest operational cost of, of any airline uh, and for Norwegian it constituted uh, 24% of our operational cost in 2017.
1: Yes it did. So the way we look at it, a large share of the fuel bill is of course given and outside our control. But the interesting part is that some of it is also within our control both through price and volume. So this episode we have invited in two guests for the first time actually.
0: Yeah, it's two of our colleagues, two experts who will shed more light on both the volume and the price issue, and how we can, in in, in some ways, uh, affect uh, the overall operational cost related to fuel, but also touch a bit on the environmental uh, issues.
1: Mm. But before we invite our guests, something is happening in Argentina this week.
0: Yes, actually uh, the Norwegian uh, king and uh, queen is on an official state visit to Argentina and uh, we are delighted uh, to share that uh, will, the queen uh, will uh, mark the official opening of Norwegian's presence in Argentina. So it's, Argentina is, is becoming a reality for us which is so exciting. So stay tuned. now we have with us Stig Pety, who is a manager for fuel savings, but also works with flight supports and are involved in several projects within Norwegian related to uh, optimize how we fly. And he also work, uh, has been working as a captain for Norwegian from our Oslo base for several years.
2: So welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
0: We always brag about how modern uh, Norwegian fleet is, and especially when the oil price is high, we say that we have an advantage, but how big is really this advantage?
2: Well, the advantage with new, brand new aircraft is really uh, it's really a big thing because it's not it's not only about the airframe being more aerodynamic; it's also about the engines being more fuel efficient. So the engine burns less, and the aircraft itself needs more um, needs less thrust to uh, to to operate and. And the brand new aircraft will also have uh, less of uh, maintenance issues. So uh, we can operate the aircraft more uh, efficient.
1: What other measures are the most important to improve the fuel inf- efficiency?
2: Well, in terms of uh, fuel efficiency now in, in, in Norwegian, it's not only about the new aircraft. It's also that we have more direct flights. So we operate uh, point to point without going via any hub, having an additional landing definitely adds to the overall fuel burn, and we try to avoid that, and we also try to ensure that we have a high load factor on the aircraft.
0: I I, I don't want to leave the fleet, uh, because um, there was this uh, ranking from the International Council on Clean Transportation a few years back, where they looked at the top 20 airlines on transatlantic routes, and just seeing how to benchmark the fuel efficiency. And and could you give us some, you know, dive a bit into what does it account for?
2: It's much more efficient to cross the Atlantic with a 787 compared to other models such as the 747, 400 and and also with the 737 fleet now, the the engines we have, they are very fuel efficient. Uh, And then now when we have the MUX phased in, it's even more fuel efficient, we can actually see a benefit. Between 15 to 20 percent less fuel burn per passenger kilometres on the uh, 737 Max, so that's really a huge leap
0: compared to the 737 800.
2: Compared to the 800, yes.
0: Yeah, which we last week we received our latest one, so they're going to be phased out and replaced by the Max. Yeah. And you
1: are working with a weather data project that gives the pilots more information on which routes to choose and where to fly. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, because even even though that we have those very efficient uh, aircraft, we, we also need to operate them as efficiently as possible. And uh, we look at ways to, to do that, to optimize the entire flight, to, to optimize flight planning, to optimize how we load the aircraft, to ensure that the the, the center of gravity is the, the optimum to really save uh, fuel, and also to find the the most fuel efficient uh, routings. Uh, and that means both laterally the the overall the navigation of the aircraft, and also the flight level, the altitude we're flying at. Um, we we used to have weather data that could be several uh, hours old. And, and the flight plan was based on those weather data, and now we're optimizing it even further. So we have weather data into the aircraft, into the cockpit, in flight, with the absolutely the highest precision uh, available. And, uh, and then we can review those weather data in real time and make uh, changes to our routing.
1: So the shortest route isn't necessarily the most fuel-efficient route?
2: That's correct. I mean, the shortest route would be the most fuel efficient if we didn't have any winds. However, we can have jet streams crossing uh, maybe 100 to 150 uh, knots uh, to 300 kilometers per hour wind. And if we can change our track just a little bit and catch some of that uh, tailwind, we can definitely have a shorter flight time. And also, on the other way, uh, when we have a strong headwind. Uh, which slows us down, and we can look for opportunities to avoid those errors either laterally or vertically
0: so how much i mean if if you can give us any figures, how much will having more optimized data or live data as you said uh precise data uh how much will that drive the efficiency of of the fuel burn?
2: An aircraft cruise at around 450 knots uh, to to make it in kilometers per hour, that'd be around uh, 850 to 900 kilometers per hour. And when we do have uh, a wind of 45 knots, that's equivalent to about 10% fuel saving 45 knots. And of course, we we cannot do that on every flight, but if we can do that on on the um, 10% of the flight, it's equivalent to 1% saving in total, for averaged overall all uh, flights.
1: And I assume that it's quite important with some awareness among the pilots on a green approach as well. For us non-pilots, we can probably uh, make a parallel to uh, car driving. There's different ways to drive, is that a fair parallel?
2: Yeah, I would say uh the, the flight is uh, roughly divided in three parts. You have the takeoff and climb, and then you have the cruise phase, and finally the approach and landing. And we try to optimize all of those uh, stages. And uh, for the green approach has been um, kind of a buzzword in the industry for more than 10 years. And it doesn't really help to claim that you have a green approach if you do it in an old aircraft. So with our modern aircraft, we can from top of descent, where we start to leave the cruising level, all the way down to landing, we try to keep the engines at idle. We, we try to have an optimized path where our accurate wind data enables us to precisely calculate the descent to arrive uh, on, uh, on ground with uh, absolutely minimum fuel burn.
1: And air transport is often blamed for its high negative environmental effects, but how is The environmental effect of flying compared to other modes of transportation.
2: Well, that's a very interesting question because we we do have a lot of um, a lot of impression in in society today that uh, flying is very environmentally uh, unfriendly. But the reality is different. We can look back to the '60s when aircraft took off. You could see a lot of smoke pouring out of the aircraft, and those were the days where the aviation probably not that uh, environmentally friendly but we have had a huge leap in development of, of environmental friendly aircraft and engines largely driven by high uh, f- fuel prices and uh, the need to really cut down on fuel and to, to have a better environmental um, philosophy and And the aircraft today can actually beat other modes of transport even trains on, on some uh, segments there's actually a recent uh study from the US where they compared transportation by train versus aircraft on certain uh, distances. And uh, the main result was that the aircraft was actually the most um, environmentally friendly. And And the, the thing with this study is that you have to consider not only the kind of uh, emissions you get out of the tailpipe, you need to include the infrastructure, all the secondary effects. So if you look at the total lifespan of a mode of transport. Uh, the uh, railway system needs a lot of uh, servicing, a lot of infrastructure. You need less infrastructure for an aircraft, obviously only at the uh, point of departure and point of landing. And you can also factor in that, this is the um, emissions per kilometer. But when you when you travel from, let's say from Oslo in Norway to Bergen on the west coast, you can travel more or less a straight line with an aircraft. While if you take a car or a train, it will travel many more kilometers, maybe even uh, the double amount of kilometers, and, and then obviously the entire uh, emissions uh, will, even, will go up even more.
1: We now have fuel manager Simon Muller with us, and as an introduction, Simon has worked with fuel almost since he was born. And prior to joining Norwegian, he worked for the fuel supplier Air BP, basically sitting on the opposite side of the table. So we obviously have a lot to learn from you, Simon. Welcome. Thank you. So we'll start with the dumbest part as we used to. And what is jet fuel and how does it correlate with Brent?
3: So basically most of you guys know that um, jet fuel is a product refined from crude oil. And so we can say that Brent is a very light um, North Sea crude oil of a high quality that is basically used as a major benchmark for the global pricing. Now, jet fuel is a refined crude oil, so the jet fuel price correlates heavily to the um, crude price. So a premium is added on top of it to include basically refinery margins to extract the jet from the crude oil, and that is called the jet crack spread, and basically saying the jet fuel is more expensive than crude oil
1: so is there a rule of thumb of the correlation between brent and jet fuel
3: it's hard to say because it always differs on different economies what is needed more now we have a very cold temperature outside so there might be more heating oil produced or kerosene in the refineries so there will be less jet fuel available so the price will increase so there's it always differs on time of the year demand summer time you need more jet fuel so it's we can't really say it is a is a fixed correlation but um it differs depending on the markets
0: but since since fuel is is really for airlines the biggest operational cost and and obviously we hedge so do we then hedge uh jet fuel or Brent
3: we do hedge jet fuel directly yes mm.
0: okay so so obviously i mean hedging is is part of an in more or less an insurance uh can be so you can end up you know having to uh Spend a lot of extra money or you can win.
3: Yes, exactly. So basically, the oil markets have a very high volatility depending on what's happening in the world. If there's a a major crisis or war or certain natural uh, nature issues like uh, hurricanes or or other things we, we have seen in the last couple of months. So we want to have a security against this volatility. So we say we hedge a certain part of our volume out into the future to secure... Our oil price. So whatever is going to happen on the markets, we know what fuel will cost for us. So we can plan for that, and we can basically adjust also our ticket price according to that.
0: So, so is there a general rule of how large proportion of your total uh, fuel demand uh, that you will hedge, or, or how do you? How do you work that out? I, I um, guess there's a lot of analytic and it, data going into that. Yes, indeed,
3: indeed it is, and there are there are several airlines around the world that have different models. Some hatch up to hundred percent, some hatch nothing at all, and we in the past hatched up to fifty percent of our volume, and we were quite su- successful with that. So, I think for the future we'll do more or less the same thing.
1: But. Um, It's quite important what the competitors do as well, since the fuel bill often affects the prices, so do you look a lot to the competitors?
3: I mean, we we look at it, what is reported in the markets, but in the end we follow our own strategy, we think it's the right way to do so, we follow that.
0: How how, uh, much in advance do you hedge? And how is that decision made?
3: So basically we look what are the markets doing? What are the price levels into the future, which is called the forward curve? Currently, what we have in the market is a backward dated forward curve. That means the price in the future is lower than it is today. So we see if that is a decent level for us. And then we go forward up to, let's say, 16, 18 months forward. And if markets are better, we might do a bit more or less.
1: And we have done some hedging the last few weeks, haven't we? We did. Yes. Yes. So hedging is then one way to affect the fuel bill, and another way is uh, the so-called differentials. Can you tell us what is this differential? Yes,
3: so the differential is a very common term in the aviation fuel business. It It is that part of the fuel bill that is not directly linked to the crude oil prices. So in short, we can say it is the logistics fee from the trading hub into the aircraft wing.
0: Okay, so it's actually to get the fuel exactly. from A to the yes.
3: aircraft. So basically that involves the cost for transportation, which can be on a cargo, which is a, a vessel, a ship, or it can be on a barge, a pipeline, trucks, trains. So the mood of transportation. Storage facilities, if it's be, if it's in the refinery, the harbors, or at the airport, There's always tank facilities at the airports. It includes the cost for the interplane service. These are the guys at the airport actually fueling our aircraft. And the manpower overheads. And, of course, the nice margin for the oil companies.
0: So if you look at the total bill then, how how large a percentage will this differentials mm-hmm. that you mentioned constitute? I, I mean, it probably varies, but... It,
3: it varies a lot between the airports. It can be a really small percentage and it can be a quite significant part.
0: So that's where your negotiating power comes into play?
3: Correct. That is basically the deals we do with the companies. So we have differentials negotiated at every airport we operate to for the next 12 to 24 months. And um, this is basically what we negotiate with the different companies out on the market. So
0: as, as we are going global, I guess you are going global as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean,
3: we are, we are going into new markets. We've just started the Singapore route last year. So we go into new markets that we haven't been before. So we need to go out to those markets. We need to do lobby work with the local suppliers so they get to know Norwegian. What are we doing? Who are we? Are we a company to work with or not? And the same, we have to do the same with the local suppliers. Do we want to work with local suppliers? What do we have to look at? Is there a security of supplies? So so there are a lot of things that we need to look at.
0: But what if unforeseen things happen as it does in the aviation and you have to go down and tank somewhere else? Uh, do you
3: have... Uh, yes. How does that work? So basically, we, because we are by the time now, a major airline with a lot of destinations, we have a coverage of a lot of airports. So we are contracted at roughly 200 airports worldwide. If there is a medical emergency or a technical issue where we have to land somewhere else, we do have contracts in place with some suppliers that support us for all emergencies or diversions. So basically when when the pilot is coming down to an airport, they know we will get fueled.
1: You mentioned approximately 200 airports. Yes. That sounds quite uh, complex. Do you negotiate 200 different contracts?
3: In the end, we do. So we have, for every single airport, we have a a supply contract. Now we have suppliers that can cover certain areas with a lot of airports. Others can cover only in some regions. So we have basically split up our regions into different areas of the world. So we have the US, we have Southern Europe, we have Central Europe, Northern Europe. And that's how we basically manage the process.
1: And you also mentioned that this differential is different from airport to airport, and that brings us over to uh, tankering, because it's always a trade-off on where you get the lowest prices and whether you should tank more fuel than you need for one specific fight. Yes. Can you tell us more yeah, about that?
3: correct. So the first part of it, the differential can vary at airports of a similar size, very close to each other, by over 150%. So at some airport it can be very cheap and in the other it's very expensive. Even if you look at it at the first glance, it doesn't make sense, but that's how it works, which is mainly because of different supply chains, higher costs and the competitive situation at this airport. So if we look at tankering, in the perfect world where every airport would have the same price, we would just take the fuel we need from A to B and a little bit extra for diversions, weather, emergencies. Now with this differential varying so much at the airports, we try to use a model where we optimize, where we uplift fuel. So if we, for example, fly from an airport that is at a lower price, we might uplift more than on the next leg that is on a higher priced airport. But again, like you said before, it always varies. It's a trade-off between weight and balance. How much fuel can we take not to burn excessively more fuel? And then also we have to take into consideration the weather conditions, runway length, and the wear and tear of the aircraft, of the brakes, because if we land with more fuel on board, it's heavier, so the brakes need more maintenance. So that all is a, is a trade-off. We need to work into that model.
1: Very complex. It is. And this is all data that the pilots receive before they decide how much fuel yes, to tank. Yes, that is right,
3: yeah. So we've we've updated our system with the current pricing at the different airports, and then with the flight plane data and weather data, this will give us a fuel figure to uplift.
0: When we talk about fuel, we can't avoid talking about... Uh, emissions also. And, and today we have the European Emissions Trading Scheme.
3: Yes, that is right. So there is a, a trading scheme right now from the European Union um, where a certain part of our emissions need to be offset with different measures. And um, we will see a major change in this in the coming years where the global Cosia program has been brought up by the ICAO and all the ICAO states, including all of the European Union states, the US, Asia, Asian states. And South American states. So this new program will cover the whole of the world of aviation, all the flights, international flights only, but all the flights will be covered in this. There will be a threshold by 2019-20 where the emissions will be measured and everything that is above this need to be offset by certain market-based measures.
0: So so how will this affect our way of
3: I think it will affect the the whole airline industry because everyone will be part of this trading scheme. So everyone needs to go out and manage the emissions more efficiently. And I think we are very well set up due to our fleet and due to our emissions being lower from the beginning as we have a more modern fleet than some of our competitors.
1: Well, that concludes this episode. And before we finish off, we would like to recommend another podcast in the Airways universe called Airways Podcasts.
0: Yeah, and our next podcast will be about our cargo business. So uh, as always, you can send questions, comments or uh, constructive feedback to investor.relations at Norwegian.com. Thank you for listening.